Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello. Hello and welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin, here today again with Mark Davidson from Camphill for the continuation of our interview on filtration, particulate capture, and indoor air quality. I hope you enjoyed part one. Looking forward to getting into it with you all and Mark in part two. Here we go. All right, so listeners, you've got a basic understanding of how filters work, and now let's talk about how to help you, or how they're evaluated, right? So that's to help you buy them, and probably more importantly, it's to help your engineer design the system and select the filter. And so there's there's two main systems that we have, or rating systems that we have. Uh, one is more U.S.-based, and that's out of ASHRAE, and it's 52.2, and it defines the MERV standard which we'll talk about. Um, and the other one is uh, ISO 16890, which is an international standard. And uh, we'll do a little bit of comparing and contrasting. MERV is still the dominant player on the ground in the U.S., although uh, that might be changing. Um, there's some rationale for why it would change. But just let's. I'm going to summarize the key points here, Mark, just so you know. Key points of, of the MERV rating system, or excuse me, uh, well, same thing. The MERV rating system or ASHRAE 52.2. That's 52.2. So 52.2 establishes um, the standardized test method to evaluate the performance of air filters um, in removing these particulate pollutants of various sizes that we were talking about. The MERV scale goes from 1 to 16. Higher is better in this one. It's not like golf, right? So the 16 is the highest. And then actually, as soon as we get to 17, we call it HEPA in, in our country. Um, the the 52.2 standard, uh, which defines the MERV rating, specifies the test conditions, the airflow rate, the particle size distribution. This is that special dirt profile that we were talking about earlier, and the particle concentration. Both of those are the dirt. And then the last thing is it, it outlines the reporting requirements, which is actually kind of in the name. So the, the name M-E-R-V, MERV, it's minimum efficiency reporting value. And uh, how about you, you start there, Mark? So what does that sure. mean, the minimum efficiency reporting value? Well, I, uh, or I, if you want to back up a little, that's fine. Well, the only thing I would back up, and, and you said MERV is from 1 to 16, and that's exactly correct. And it's just maybe it's a minor pet peeve of mine because I run into this sometimes. But if you're working with a filter manufacturer or something and they have MERV 17 on their website, you probably want to go find somebody else because there's no such thing as a MERV 17. You know, that was years and years and years ago. Okay, so MERV goes from 1 to 16. And as you said, once you leave MERV 16 and get higher, then you get into another testing standard. ASHRAE 52.2 stops at MERV 16. Filters yeah. other than that are tested by other test methods like EN 1822 and things like that. Right. right. And in fact, you know, that's this is a good place to interject. Like one of the criticisms of 52.2 is that it, it doesn't fully represent the entire spectrum of airborne particles, especially the, the ultra-fine particles. Um, 
at least in Correct. terms of it, rating it, value. It, and I think it to be fair, yeah. yeah, and and that's because it's general ventilation filtration, right? Once you get into HEPA, you're starting to get into more specialized area. It would be great in a perfect world, you know, every house would have a HEPA filter. I have a HEPA powered air purifier sitting right behind me, right? Because I'm in the I'm in the industry, so I better have that, right? So I have that, but but it's difficult to have a HEPA filter in a lot of applications because of the uh, uh, the requirements for the fan and the frames and things like that. So it goes from one to sixteen because that's just a general ventilation filter standard, right? So. If you think about testing a filter, here's how MERV works. So again, just use your, um, your your brain here and picture three piles of dirt, okay? And in pile one, you've got the dirt particles are 0.3 to one micron in size, right? That's one pile, and we're gonna call that E1, right? Then you have another pile of dirt, and the particles in there are one to three microns, and we're gonna call that E2. Then you have a third pile of dirt, and that's E3, and that's particles that are three to ten. Okay, and that's that's real. That's the tester. You got to have standardized tester because all filters that have a MER value associated are tested with the same standardized dirt under the same conditions, and that's important because you want to compare apples to apples. So then, basically, what you do is, and this is a broad, this is you know broad painting here, but imagine a big test duct. You got a filter in the middle. You got your filter you want to test. You got a particle counter downstream and maybe a particle counter upstream and you introduce these test dust and you count upstream and then you count downstream and then you know how many particles you captured and what size, right? And then you create a chart and say, okay, so on that first range of filters, 0.3 to 1 micron, if you capture an average of 50% of particles between 0.3 and 1, you can call yourself a MERV-13. Right? Because a MERV-13 has to capture at least 50% of particles between 0.3 and 1. Yep. Now, it also has to catch um, 85% of, of range 2 and 85% of E3, right? We're just going to focus on range 1 for now. So a, a, a MERV-13 filter is 50% efficient on the smallest particles. A MERV-16 filter is 95% efficient, an average of 95% efficient, on particles 0.3 to 1. So that's how the MERV chart works. And it and you you kind of look at range 2 and 3 when you get into the lower efficiency. So a MERV 8 filter, which is kind of what you probably have on your house, on E1, which is the smallest range, do you know what size particles it captures? The MERV 8 on E1? Yeah. Uh... Zero. It's, it's too small. Yeah. They don't even count them because most it's of those particles will go right past, okay? <laughs> yeah. So a MERV-8 starts on E2 range, which is the uh, one to three micron, and a MERV-8 has to capture at least 20% and 70% of the largest particles. Right. So I always like to say this, there's a dirty little secret that all of us air filter people know that most people don't know, which is that MERV-8 filters are not designed to protect your lungs. They're not designed to protect you. They're designed to protect the equipment. They're designed right. to keep the heat transfer efficiency of the coils at their maximum. They're designed to protect the fan. That's what they're designed for because the smallest particles, as you were mentioning before, particles less than one micron are the particles that give you the most trouble health-wise, and MERV-8 filters don't capture hardly anything. Yep, that's right. right. 
So that's yeah. what Merv. That's what Merv. The Merv chart can do for you. Once you understand the particle sizes, and you look at the, if you get a Merv chart, and then you get a test for a filter. And by the way, this is a good point to throw in there. If you buy a filter, and it has a Merv rating on it, right? Let's say you're you want to upgrade to Merv 13, so you go buy a Merv 13 filter, and it says right on there Merv 13. Part of the ASHRAE 52.2 test standard says, okay, manufacturer, if you're going to label your filter MERV-13, then you need to test it according to the standard. And the other implication of that is that if I, as a consumer, buy a filter that's labeled MERV-13, I want to see that test report. And you, you can ask for a copy of your test report, and then you can start to look at it and see, okay, my MERV-13 catches 50% of particles between three, an average of 50% between 0.3 and one micron. And that's important to look at that test report. Yep, exactly. Yeah, just to, I'm gonna just summarize that. That was beautiful. Sure. So you have the three buckets, 0.3 to one, one to three, and three to 10. Let's pause there for a minute and say, remember we talked about direct to blood and nanoparticles. These are the ones that are 0.1 and smaller. And here we can talk about one of the kind of the criticisms of the MERV rating is it lumps everything into 0.3 and above its smallest, yeah. its smallest bucket is 0.3 to one. It doesn't Correct. look at 0.3 and smaller. And yet we know that from a health effect standpoint, now you could mute that and you could say, well, the MPPS is around 0.3. So you could assume that if it's MERV 13, 50% at 0.3, it's better than 50% at 0.1. Right. So, but still it's not rated, but to your point, the, to call themselves a MERV 13, a filter manufacturer has to make a filter that hits 50% at 0.3 to 1, 85% at 1 to 3, and 90% at 3 to 10. Um, and let's just jump up to MERV 16, the highest, 95 across the board. Correct. 95 at 0.3 to 1, 95 at 1 to 3, and 95 at 3 to 10. Um, but the MERV 8, right, it's it's not even rated in the 1 to 3 category. It's not even above 50% there. It's just 70% of the big ones. Yeah, because uh, the, the those particles, so many of those particles go right through the filter. It would overwhelm, overwhelm the counter. <laughs> so it yeah. just it doesn't catch enough to, uh, to even register. Yeah, and, and I just want to say something. like The way things operate out there in, in the, quote, real world with installers often is there's a concern that if you don't – like you don't deliver enough air, then you're not delivering enough heating, then you're not delivering enough cooling. So there's a tension in the installer's mind between those things that you'll complain about, not delivering enough heating and cooling, and doing good filtration, you might not notice. You know, our eyes can't resolve any of these <laughs> sizes. Um, you can see that, you know, you, you know our, our cleaning lady at our office where we have some fantastic filters, um, MERV 16 all around, and we also have ERVs and things and dedicated dehues filtering all the time. But she says like, are you guys pre-cleaning before me? Cause it's not dusty here like my other offices. So you will notice that. Right. But my point is that if I'm an installer, I really don't want you to complain. I want you to be happy with my installation. And that's gonna bias me to just go with the standard out of the box MERV 8 where I'll get the maximum amount of air moving through my system. Um, but that's changed. I mean, honestly, Pre-pandemic, it was changing. And during the pandemic, the whole world learned about, um, in fact, let's talk about that, learned about um, N95. Yeah, uh, I, before you go there, I, 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 I think we should bounce into the epidemic task. Are you, let me, are you familiar with ASHRAE 241? Yes, absolutely. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, it just came out, and the minimum efficiency in 241 is MERV 11. Mm-hmm. Right? The epidemic task force. But the minimum started, recommendation. Okay, please. Yes, you're going. Well, ahead. the epidemic task force, when it came out, their minimum efficiency requirement was MERV 13. Right. It said MERV 13, MERV 14 or higher is better, but MERV 13 should be the minimum. You understand? ASHRAE 241. Let's say that one more time. MERV 13 should be the minimum. Okay, go ahead. MERV 13 (laughs) should be the minimum, right? MERV 14 or higher is better, but MERV 13 is the minimum. Um, And the the White House back in October of 2022 had a big clean air summit. And what came out of that basically was was a project by ASHRAE to create another standard uh, that was driven based upon the need for to control infectious diseases, right? And that's where standard 241 came out. And if you've yeah. read that a little bit, you know a little bit about it. But the disappointing thing about 241 is they went to a MERV 11 as the minimum requirement, which was kind of disappointing and surprising yeah. they didn't stick with the MERV 13. But I think the perception is what you just said is that a lot of units, and think about your home unit, there's a perception that a lot of units cannot handle the increased pressure drop of a MERV-13. And that's simply not true in most cases. In most cases, it's just not true. And and we were, I was generally, and it just came out, you know, and it, we were all generally surprised to see MERV-11 is what they went with when the epidemic task force went with MERV-13. And the whole point of ASHRAE 241 is infectious disease control, which of course, what COVID was, was an infectious disease. So I'm a little bit surprised they did. I don't understand why. I, I kind of do. I think there yeah, was a little bit a of pressure. making process. Yeah, I, I think so. So I don't know that we want to get into that because 241 is too new. And I think that's still getting all hashed out. But anyway, so sounds like that's a topic for you for another day. Yeah, I very much love to get into that. And thank you, actually. And one of our engineers knows uh, one of the engineers that was on that task force and get into it, but getting into, so the HEPA then, so we have MERV uh, one to 16. This is sort of another criticism of the MERV rating scale, but you could basically argue that one to 12 are irrelevant. (laughs) So you only want 13 to 16 and you really want to get as high as you can. And with good design, I can tell you emphatically, you can have MERV 16 filtration in a home context, but then we have, we'll talk about wildfires coming up. Um, HEPA is 99.97 at 0.3. You also have ultra, uh, low particulate arrestment. What's ULPA actually? What does that stand for? Ultra low penetration arrestment. Penetration. I was like, it's not particular arrestment. Okay. ULPA. And that's 99.9993 and then a five, but that's at 0.12 microns now. So 120 nanometers. And then we can go over into the, you know, the ISO, Sixteen, uh, eight, well, ninety, or actually, well, it's for like HEPA, two, it's two nine yeah. yeah, and that's an entirely different standard. That's a European standard, mostly yeah. European, I should say, and and that they use MPPS, and they get in yep. like eight thirteen. H thirteen is ninety nine point five on MPPS. Exactly. H fourteen is ninety nine point nine nine five. And then you have U15, U16, U17, they go deeper and deeper. Yeah. So interestingly, just as an engineer looking at the data, when you, if you were to be going by the European standards in this country, we would be able to specify with much more resolution 
what our particle uh, MPPS is in our particulate cap. Yeah, for on the HEPA filter, that's true. Uh, on the ISO sixteen eight ninety, I'm not I'm not really sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that that's a whole nother topic, actually. The the ISO twenty nine four sixty three versus the sixteen eight ninety. Okay, so there's one major area that we need to discuss in the context of MERV, and it's ASHRAE 52.2 Appendix J, where you have a new rating standard, and it's MERV-A. Could, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, this is everybody in the filter world. This is their favorite topic. Um, so MERV-A, sometimes we call A actual. And, and you could even say, when you think about MERV, minimum efficiency reporting value, you could say, replace the word minimum with maximum and say the MERV value, if you have a MERV 13, that's its maximum efficiency reporting value because if it's electrostatic, that might be the highest it's going to be. Yep. Um, so, so I was saying before, when you have electrostatic fiber, right? And that's a mechanism of filtration, right? as the dirt particles start to accumulate on the fiber, something interesting happens, right? And one of the ways to think about this is you can, uh, electrostatic charge is analogous to a magnet, okay? Let's say you have a magnet and you have a couple of pieces of paper and you put it over the magnet and then you have a little metal disc like a washer or something. You can move the magnet underneath the paper and you can move that metal, a disc around all over the place. It looks like magic. And probably you've done that with your kids before, right? And you show, hey, this is magic. But if you start adding pieces of paper, a little bit at a time, three, four, five, six or seven pieces of paper, sooner or later, that magnetic attraction can't penetrate those sheets of paper and you can't move that around anymore. So what happens on a filter that has electrostatic charge that relies on electrostatic charge to give it its particular MERV value. Let's say you have a MERV 13 filter. And actually let's go up a little bit and let's make it MERV 14 because that's okay. common in like hospital rooms, yeah. in patient MERV rooms 14, and things like that. In the buckets, it's 75%, 90%, 95%. Right, okay, so you this, and, and so you've achieved that because you have electrostatic charge. Once you put that filter in service, as dirt starts to, as air starts to flow by, it's carrying ultra-fine particles that we can't see. Some of those particles that just shoot right past a MERV-8 filter and, in fact, go right past a MERV-14 filter because you need to happen to capture those, maybe in an ultra. So what happens is they start to accumulate on the layer of that charged fiber. And as they begin to accumulate, that electrostatic charge, much like a magnet trying to reach through too many sheets of paper, it can no longer grab those particles as they go by, Right. And so it's tempting to say, well, you know what? That's not terrible. Why don't we make a filter like that? Well, here's a great analogy. Um, everyone knows what an N95 mask is, right? Yeah, good. You brought us back to right? this too. I wanted to right. discuss you remember? So think about an N95 mask, okay? So a lot of people, everyone knows what N95 is, but not, maybe not as many people know what the N and the 95 stand for, right? N means non-oil-based particles which just really means general particles. I think in a perfect world, they'd call it G95 because it's, you know, N is, is very high oil-based particles and things like that. I've, I've been in industrial facilities on and off for 30 years, and I've only had to wear a, a, a mask other than an N95 once. They make an R95, 
and an S95. I only had to worm those once. Generally, an N95 is all you need. It's for general particles, right? Right. The 95, however, stands for 95%. So an N95 is 95% efficient on general particles. Now, if you remember the MERV chart, we were talking about the different size particles. So maybe your first question is, well, wait a minute, 95% on what? Well, yeah, it's not exactly. tested. It's not tested by ASHRAE 52.2. That's not how you test a, uh, uh, an N95 mask. It's tested in an entirely different test. And those particles are 0.3 micron in size. Mm -hmm. So an N95 mask is 95% efficient on 0.3 particles. Okay. So imagine you put on an N95 mask and you're breathing through it. So you have 95% efficiency. You have a filter that's 95% efficient on your face on 0.3 particles. Okay. Now go back to the MERV chart and think about something and take a look at that and go down to MERV 16, as you said. MERV 16s are 95% across the board, right? So let's take a MERV 16 filter, tear it apart, spread the media out, cut a little oval out of it, put some straps on it, put it on your face, and you've got yourself a filter that's pretty much equal to an N95, right? There's a little bit of a difference because the, the MERV chart is 0.3 to 1 micron, and a, and a MERV 16 is an average of 95% on those particle sizes. So it may be 90% on 0.3, it may be 98% on 1, but you put those together, the average is 95%. So a MERV 16 filter is just a little bit less efficient than an N95 mask, okay? So you put that, N90, that MERV 16 mask on your face and you try to breathe out of it, and guess what? You can't breathe out. The resistance is too high. So now you may ask yourself a question, well, wait a minute. You just said that MERV 16 is a little bit less efficient than an N95 mask, which means if it's less efficient, it should have a lower resistance. So why can't I breathe out of it when I can breathe easily out of an N95 mask? That's a valid question. And the answer is this. If you take an N95 mask and you tear it apart, in the middle of the, that, you know, it's got multiple layers, and somewhere in the middle, you're going to find a fabric. And if you could analyze that fabric, you'd find that that fabric has a very high electrostatic charge imparted on it, very high. So what happens is, as dirt particles go through that, fire, that, that fabric that's very highly charged, that mask grabs them. But because it's a very thin fabric, you get, the, you get very low resistance. So you're able to breathe out of an N95 mask, but you get very high efficiency. So on the surface, you might think, well, that's a great, great idea. Why don't we make air filters like that? Because then we can have very high efficiency Yep. and very low resistance. It seems like a win-win. The difference is this, as I was just saying, as dirt particles start to accumulate in the fiber, that efficiency drops. And if you have a MERV-16 filter that achieves a MERV-16 because it has electrostatic charge, the longer it's in service and the more air that goes through it with dirt particles, the more the efficiency is going to drop. Now, the difference with an N95 mask is this. N95 masks are supposed to be single use or at least limited use, right? Yeah. If you remember during the pandemic, there was this big rush to try to find a way to sanitize N95 masks because you could use them over again because there was a shortage of them. So there are a mm -hmm. lot of companies looking at different ways. How can we sanitize used 95 masks so they can be reused? One of their biggest uh, hangups with that was that they could not find a way to 
uh, sanitize the mask without destroying the electrostatic charge. Mm-hmm. And if they did, that N95 would end up being an N80 or something like that, right? Which would defeat the purpose. Yep. Now, if you're wearing an N95 mask for months at a time to protect yourself against COVID, you really don't have to worry that much because we don't breathe very much air. What do we breathe? You know, two or three CFM a minute, maybe something like that. An air filter is taking in 2000 CFM a minute. So you're breathe. You're not breathing enough air. So you're not getting enough dirt particles that you're really going to have to worry about dropping the efficiency of your mask, right? But a MERV 16 filter that's in service, that's a different story. You're bringing in 2000 CFM every minute. A CFM is about the size of a basketball. So every minute you've got 2000 basketball sized chunks of air flowing through that MERV 16 filter and all the ultrafine dirt particles are accumulating on those fibers. And if it's electrostatic charge, it's losing a charge and that MERV 16 is dropping to a 15, then a 14, and then a 13. In my company, we have our own test lab. We've done tests and we've we've seen MERV 16 filters drop as low as MERV 11. We've seen MERV 13 filters drop as low as MERV 8. So electrostatic charge is a problem. Everyone's aware of that. ASHRAE did their own research papers. If you're a member of ASHRAE, I would encourage you to look it up. I think it's research paper 1189 and 1190. It goes into the details and it shows where the Appendix J test procedure came from because they're very well aware that filters can lose efficiency and that's where the MERV A comes from. So if you want to get into this, think about the test standards I said before. You have a test duct where you're testing it and you have a filter in place and you put that test dust through there and you come up with a MERV 13 filter, right? It's 50% on that first range particles. Okay, that's great. Then you get another filter that's the exact same filter, but you do a conditioning test on it. And the conditioning procedure is what's outlined in Appendix J. Appendix J, yeah. And that removes or it insulates, depending on who you talk to, and that's the controversy behind that within the 52 too. But it removes the effect that that electrostatic charge has on particle capture efficiency. And then you test that filter again. And if that filter is a mechanical filter, made mostly with fine fibers and not rely on electrostatic charge, it's still going to be a MERV-13. But if that filter was made with big, heavy fibers and it relied on a strong electrostatic charge, that MERV-13 is going to drop maybe as low to a 9 or an 8. And so that's the MERV-A value. That's what that means. So if you want to buy a filter and you see a filter that's labeled MERV-13 slash 13A, that means that filter is going to remain a MERV-13 as long as it's in service. You could see a filter that says MERV 13 slash 10. That means that filter is going to drop to a MERV 10 when it loses its electrostatic, the benefit of its electrostatic charge. Beautiful. Yeah, so architects out there in your specs, please ask for MERV to be reported in both MERV rating and MERV A. That would be a great way to get the industry to do it. And for the Uber nerds listening, um, I know you're out there. I hear from you a lot. and glad you're listening. There, this You would Google uh, Electret degradation. And right. electret is simply uh, a term referring to a solid dielectric that has a persistent um, polarization, electrostatic charge. And there's quite a bit of <laughs> controversy and good bit to know about electret degradation. And, you know, as someone who designs a lot of systems in humid climates, um, well, the main mechanisms that degrade the electrostatic effect or, you know, electros- electret degradation is particle loading, moisture, temperature, and mechanical stresses. Um, but generally speaking, and see, there's, a, there's more research needed here, right? So it's reasonable that higher humidity levels 
could lead to increased moisture true. absorption and degrade the electrostatic effect. But generally speaking, the electret degradation on a filter is a month's to years degradation. It's not like in a few hours, you know, you take a hot shower and it goes through your filter and it's no longer has electrostatic impact. That's correct. So, it's it's hard. You can't you, you cannot say with certainty, okay, if you put this filter in place, if you come back and look at it in two months, it's going to be a MERV 11 instead of a MERV 14. You can't say that it because it's a it's a product of airflow and dirt and, as you said, humidity and some other factors. Yeah, and, so and we need more research that. on this. And, uh, you know, I guess this is just yet another nerdy, deep, deep in the weeds reason to pay attention to your air filter. That's the same as pay attention to paying attention to your health, right? You brush your teeth, think about your air filter and um, change it regularly. I mean, that that simple thing, you know, if we want to take a takeaway from the podcast at a very basic level, filters are very important. Change them regularly. I, 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 would, I would add an amendment to that as Please. far as change regularly. And I would say change your filter when it needs to be changed. Because let's talk about that, please. Because um, filters cost money. Now it's easy if you're in your house; it's it's not costing that much. You're going to go buy a filter and you're going to change. It. It's going to take you five minutes, right? But if you're a facility manager and you're in a, a hospital or an office building, you know you've got an awful lot of filters, right? And it, you you can be in a, a facility that has five hundred, maybe a thousand filters spread out over you know two dozen different air handling units spread across the roof. You know, so changing filters is a big deal. So you want to change the filter when it needs to be changed. If your filter is in place, if it's maintaining its efficiency, and if it's flowing the proper dirt load, you probably shouldn't change it. You change a filter when the air flowing into the space degrades to the point where there's an issue, right? That's an ideal time to change your filter. And you can actually do curves and different things like that. You can come up with the optimum time to change your particular filter for that application because they're all different because again, it's all a product of dirt load and things yeah. like that. So it it's, it's for a home, it's okay to change your filter, you know, regularly every two months or one month or three months or something like that <clears throat> because the cost isn't that great. But for an industrial facility or a hotel or a hospital or something like that, they really need to plan that out and get the maximum service life out of their filter as they can because it's expensive to uh, change a filter because you're using your maintenance people and they could be doing other jobs that really perform a lot of other valuable functions instead of doing something like change a filter way before it's time, which which happens. I mean, yeah. we're filter sellers, so on one hand, we're like, yeah, sure, <laughs> change your filter, right? But we also want to maintain that idea about total cost of ownership, right? You want to filter that you want to optimize your filter and you want to spend your money wisely. So don't change a filter until it's actually time to change your filter. Get your maximum service life out of it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I have MERV 13 and I know from experience that I need to change them about every four months. And so right. I just do that. That's I have lots of dogs and you know. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for sticking with us, Mark. There's a couple more big no topics to get through and then we'll summarize and, and wrap. Um, so wildfires is a new, quote unquote, new. I mean, they've been happening forever, but they're happening more frequently now. And homes are fundamentally shelter. They're places that we build to protect ourselves and our family. And wildfire smoke, you know, it's not 
just campfire smoke that you have very episodic, you know, very infrequent exposure to. When there's a wildfire in your region, you're breathing it all the time. And those are VOCs. Those are, you know, they call them biomass burning emitted VOCs. But what's fascinating, and not in this conversation today, is that those VOCs, they're getting oxidized, they're creating ozone, they're, you know, being transported all over. Um, there's also secondary organic aerosols being emitted and secondary VOCs that are hazardous. So it's this rich chemical reaction. But for today, what we're going to be talking about is saying, yeah, yada, 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 we want to trap these particles and we want to trap these gases. And what we've learned since the you know, pandemics have become more frequent in, in the Western part of the country where there's also a lot of passive houses is that when you think of filtration as a system, if you want to have clean air inside, you need to make sure that the outside air can't just leak in through your walls and roof all the time. So first step in creating a shelter in place scenario in a wildfire situation is your good enclosure, is your air control layer. And the second step is bring in good ventilation air. I mean, you can put a Corsi Rosenthal box into there to pull the particles out once they get indoors, which will be helpful, but that's not going to help with CO2 and other pollutant buildups that happen based on occupancy. You still need ventilation air or you still want ventilation air in. And this gets into particulate capture and filtration. Um, and just for the sake of time, Mark, what we've learned is that we need HEPA filtration on the air intake, which means designed thoughtfully. Um, and what I would like you to expand on, Mark, is the secondary aspect here is gaseous filtration, right? So getting these gas molecules out. Is that something that Campfill is offering uh, expertise and products in that realm? Sure, yeah. You know, so broadly speaking, think about a phrase we've all heard, activated carbon, mm -hmm. right? We've all, all, all heard that. So if you think about what that means, what you're trying to do is you're trying to adsorb molecules. Okay? That was with a D, listeners. That's right. That's a D. That's not <laughs> AB. That's AD, right? Um, and there's a lot of different analogies to try to describe that. But um, so activated carbon. So you think about this, and, and this is a good good way to visualize it. And I think I got these numbers correct. If you take a teaspoon of activated carbon, and they're small particles. I'm think about kitty litter, something like that. Right? Yeah. And if you or, or better, actually, a better analogy is think about a piece of paper. You got a just a basic basic piece of paper. Reach over and crumble it all up. Right. And if you measure that, you're going to get a certain volume. Okay, that's great. You got a certain volume. But if you spread that out flat, you've dramatically expanded that surface area, right? So if you take a teaspoon of activated carbon, and if you could uncrumble all the carbon, it would be about the size of a tennis court, right? So activated carbon, imagine a pool, uh, a ball uh, from uh, a, a pool ball, right? What word am I mm -hmm. looking for? Cue ball, a billiard ball. ball. Thank, billiard bar, thank you. Imagine a billiard ball. It seems nice and smooth, right? But now imagine that you could fracture it and put 100 million little fractures all over it. And if you got down really close, you'd see little caves were formed. And you could almost like Injun Joe's cave and uh, Mark Twain, right? You get little particles, molecules that go in there and they get, they get inside of that cave and they can't get out. It's too big for particles, but molecules can get inside there and they get trapped. And there's a couple ways they get held in place then get held in place with a mechanical or with a chemical, right? But they're held in place. And the, the difference is molecules are like a thousand times smaller than the particles that HEPA filters capture. 
So you can't capture those particles with HEPA filters. You have to have what we call a molecular filter, which is just that there. It's a, a high surface area where those small molecules get trapped inside of, I like to call it a cave, and they're stuck mm -hmm. in there, right? And that's Both how you- Chemically can, and mechanically. Mm -hmm. Chemically and mechanically, and they're trapped inside there. And that's how you can kind of control some of the odors, not just the odors, odors are a nuisance, right? But as you're talking about dangerous molecules, dangerous chemicals that can have serious health effect, activated carbon molecular filters is our phrase for them. They can capture those gaseous contaminants and they can certainly do that with wildfire. Yep. Beautiful. It's so important, you guys. And, you know, I think this actually speaks to the importance of getting a design and being, being thoughtful and thinking about your enclosure because wildfires are here to stay. And can we touch on one last thing with regard to this uh, molecular filtration, this gaseous filtration? How, how do you know when it's time to change that filter? Well, it's, it's difficult because um, there's no resistance per se, right? Because you, you're not building up resistance because you're talking about the small particles. Um, without tooting Canfield's horn too much, and I apologize for that, <laughs> but I assume other filter companies either do this or should do this. Um, if, if you have that product, if you have an activated carbon filter, I mean, you can send that out to be tested and you can identify how much service life is left in that. We can certainly do that. On the other hand, if you have an air purifier, you know, air purifiers, there's a lot of air purifiers in the market today. We certainly have our own. I told you, I've got a HEPA filter right behind me. It's got activated carbon filters in it as well. You know, they're, they're pretty much guaranteed to last 18 months in a standard home environment. So for the next 18 months, I've got molecular filtration and I have H14 HEPA filtration, 99.995% on MPPS. So there are ways to do that. And I'm here in the Midwest, awesome. right smack dab in the middle in suburb of St. Louis. And it was only two weeks ago, if you remember yeah. all of this smoke Canadian. that was coming down from Canadian, you know, I was out of town and I get home on the airport and I get off the plane and I'm looking outside. I'm getting an Uber ride home. I'm like, holy cow, what the heck is happening here? And I hadn't kept up with the news here home. And we were, this is our time. You know, this is our time in the barrel. All that smoke had changed. The wind came and St. Louis was inundated with wildfire smoke. And our uh, air quality index just plummeted, which was not exactly a first, but it happens. But it's fairly rare around here. We're not at where you're at right now, where that's a commonplace thing out uh, out on the west part of the U.S., that's more common, but it's very surprising. And and you're right, it's it's something people can, they need to protect themselves. And the good thing is there is a mechanism to protect yourself. As you said, high efficiency particulate filtration and molecular filtration to control some of the gaseous contaminants. Yep, that's right, that's right. And I, I suppose you just, you change your carbon filter at the same frequency as your, as your media filter. In this particular case, you certainly can, yeah. But but in a more an industrial application or a commercial application, if you have larger systems, because you can get cylinders. You know, think about a large thirty-inch wide cylinder, eight inch in diameter. You know, you could have uh, multiple systems like that, and you can have those tested if you're in a uh, an extreme environment where you need to change those. Uh, frequently or change those at the right time. So you keep the performance optimal and protect your occupants of your building. Those you can get tested. Got it. Good. And most air purifiers you change on time. Yeah. Good. Good. Thank you. 
All right, last topic is going to be subtractive versus additive air chemistry. Uh, we've covered a lot today. This is this could be its own podcast. I'm going to put it in here because it does have to do with generating clean air with with a different type. It's not really a filter, but it's, 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 well, let me just get into it. So basically we're talking about making clean air for breathing and certainly since the pandemic, but even before there was a lot of, there were a lot of manufacturers pushing ozone and ionizers and other sorts of active, you know, hydroxyl radicals and sort of active air chemistry that it was very easy to cherry pick the data and show tremendous, you know, improvement in air quality. Whereas with those same products, indoor air quality researchers, which, you know, they're not in the sales function, they see no net benefit. And in fact, they caution that it's a very complex situation. And we should, here's their beautiful quote, never do indoor chemistry experiments in an occupied space. Because fundamentally what's happening when you're doing an indoor chemistry experiment is you can cherry pick the data and find less formaldehyde or you know less whatever you're looking for, but you don't know what other kind of reactions have occurred. And um, before I turn it over to you, Mark, to talk about these things from your perspective, I just want to remind listeners, like all your body wants is clean air. That's all we want. And filters, classic filtration removes pollutants, leaving clean air. So this whole situation about what is it I add to the air, like we know not to add plugins, you know, air quote unquote fresheners. So what are your thoughts on uh, additive chemistry? Um, well, I, I think, purifiers? yeah, broadly speaking, the idea behind additive chemistry, um, you know, maybe you could think of this as like the, the water cycle or the rain cycle, right? You know, we it rains because moisture coalesces around dirt particles in the air, which form a cloud. They eventually they get heavy enough and they fall to the ground. Right, and that's kind of the little bit of the theory here is that you view um, artificially introduced particles into the air. That and forget about the charge for just a second and the charge oh, attraction. Just it you're seems just, hard to forget about the charge. Well, I mean, you're introducing it. particles into the air with the idea that they are somehow going to bond to other Sticky, particles yeah. that you don't want in the air, and then two things could potentially happen: their their mass is going to increase, and when their mass increases. It can either fall and move out of the breathing zone, right? Or because their mass increases, then you go back to the Brownian motion thing for a moment and think about small particles in the air. When we said Brownian motion, these particles can remain suspended or bounce all over the place. That was one of the things that came out of the pandemic is that these respiratory droplets and aerosols can remain, especially aerosols, can remain suspended in that breathing zone for hours, if not longer. Right. And that's because they're so small. Uh, so they have so little mass. They're buoyant. Right. Again, <laughs> air is air is a liquid. Right. Yeah. And so they're buoyant. So they're essentially floating right there. And if they maintain in the air zone where you breathe, you're more likely to breathe that on, uh, breathe that in. So the idea behind additive chemistry is like, well, let's make those more massive so that, number one, they can either fall out of the breathing zone quickly, which is why you had that one meter or that six foot, you know, uh, social distance, right? Stay six foot away because the idea behind that was that your respiratory droplets from an infected individual would go through the air and then fall down to the ground out of the breathing zone, right? So that's what additive chemistry would do is like, well, let's make them heavier so they fall or let's make them heavier 
so that they can be impacted by airflow and we can move those into a filter where we can capture. That's the idea behind additive chemistry. So I guess, broadly speaking, my company has not evaluated this uh, to the degree that we have other technologies. So we're kind of hesitant to get into that. While we do have chemists on staff, you know, that, that do a lot of stuff, we have not devoted a time to evaluate all this. Um, but broadly speaking, I could think, I would say that that all things being equal, we would rather not add something into the air. <laughs> we would rather capture what's in the air. And I think there's ways to do that with clever engineering and airflow design and things like that, as opposed to adding things into the air. And then the, the final thing would be, as you kind of touched on a little bit, um, I don't know how many chemicals there are actually officially recognized today. I bet it's 200 million different chemicals. So <laughs> yeah. when you're was, introducing tens of thousands for sure. Yeah. yeah. So when you're introducing something into the air, you know, can you really have 100% certainly that you understand the chemical reactions that you're creating, especially in a wildfire? You don't know what that fire has burned down the street. You know, was yeah. that a chemical plant that burned? Was that a feed? Pl what burned? So what's in the air? Burning, all that stuff. Who knows? The sink is right. Yeah. So what? So what's burning? So when you're introducing chemicals in the air, and then you expect or you anticipate one reaction, and maybe you're going to get that reaction, but you don't anticipate or expect the other reactions. Now, maybe there's a way to make that work. I don't know. I can't speak to that. All I can speak to is in a perfect world, all things being equal, we would rather not see things go into the air. Now, additive, that's a little bit different than UV. UV is a little bit different thing. UV is designed to disrupt uh, for lack of a better phrase, you know, it's designed to cook the guts of some living organism so they're mm -hmm. no longer alive. So that's a little bit different thing. Um, and you can capture those organisms, right? I would say about UV, UV is a supplement to filtration. Filtration is not a supplement to UV. Yes, absolutely. You, know, you can have filtration and UV. You can have filtration, but you shouldn't have just UV. Because mm -hmm. if you're going to kill a particle in the air, you still need to remove it from the airstream. Otherwise, your lungs just basically torn, turn into a coral reef, right? I mean, you got all these dead skeletons and you're breathing them in. They're stuck. You don't want to do that, right? <laughs> you want to move it from the airstream. So that's that's a difference between additive and sub, uh, subtractive chemistry. As the filtration guys, we would say we're on the uh, subtractive side of the coin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so and UV, I think, in fact, a good summary here is in the context of homes, if there's some reason why you think you need additive, you know, you need to add chemicals or ions or plasmas to your air, you really, what you really need is to go back to the basics, which is start with a good enclosure, minimize the emissions indoors, keep your air dry, keep it filtered, what we're talking about today, and make sure you ventilate and, you know, ventilate with filtered air too. So like, if you do those, there's no point in a home setting very rarely a point for you. I, I, I would tend to agree with that because in my old world where I spent years in the food and beverage industry, you know, this idea about mold and, and bacteria growth and things like that. Um, sometimes you have to control that with filtration and molecular and things like that, which is true, but it's just as important or if not even more important, just as you said, if you have, if you have mold developing, you know, why is that mold developing? You know, go find the source of that and see if that's correctable. Same thing you're talking about in a house. If you feel like you need UV, then determine if that's avoidable or not by making some other changes. Because 
UV should be almost be a last resort. And again, as I stick with that thing, UV is a supplement to filtration, not the other way around. So if you have UV, don't think you need to downgrade your filtration because that's not true. Yep, exactly. So summarizing today, which is a large uh, effort, lots of things have happened, is that clean air, all our body really wants indoors is clean air. Right? That's what we want. That's what we're working on creating. Filtration occurs as part of a system. Filtration occurs, you know, both within the, you know, filtering the air mass that's indoors and filtering the ventilation air mass that's coming indoors. There are particles that penetrate air filters and the size where most of the particles of this size get through is known as the MPPS. Martin, Matt, was it? Most, most penetrating, penetrating particle thank size. Thank you. Yes, been a long podcast here. Most penetrating <laughs> particle size, MPPS. By the way, that's typically around 0.3. And by the way, our body's natural filtration kind of bottoms out around one micron, right? So filters are already doing a lot better than that. I learned today with you all that, from Mark that there's two main types of filter media, synthetic media, which is, uh, which is plastics fundamentally, and then fine microglass filters, not fiberglass filters. I think one of the big takeaways is MERV 13 is a minimum filtration performance target. Uh, MERV 16 would be better for wildfire ventilation air, HEPA. And then when it comes to these additive um, air chemistry devices, you know, fundamentally you should just say no and just remember that you never want to do indoor chemistry experiments in occupied spaces and that all our body wants is clean air. We don't need to add something to it. Uh, generally speaking. And I think, Mark, you you had a really great point about the, the Venn diagrams and looking for, um, maybe you could summarize with that, kind of, or one of the summary pieces would be like looking for this trade-off between efficiency and energy use and things right. like that. Right. It, it, air filters can be expensive to operate. And again, going back to that very beginning, you know, you're Someone is moving air from point A to point B, so you have an opportunity to filter that air to improve your health. So take advantage of that opportunity. And the other point is if you're going to have an HVAC system that if it's a home HVAC, I just put one in our home here um, like two years ago. It was $10,000, right? But if you have a business and you're putting in a large HVAC system or at a school or something like that, you're in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if you're going to invest that much money in supplying air into a, a space, then then don't forget about the air filter. Just because it may be the smallest and least expensive component, everything that HVA system does, every single thing it does is dependent upon the performance of that air filter. So learn about air filters. And as far as the Venn diagram idea behind that, filters, again, filters have three attributes. They catch dirt, they hold dirt, they flow air. There's a way to find the filter that does the best for your application, and that will give you, you know, your 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 lowest total cost of ownership. Meaning, and total cost of ownership implies performance. It doesn't matter if you if you get the lowest uh, total cost, but it doesn't perform, right? You want a filter that performs to the efficiency that you want, right, and that you need, but that has the least effect on your pocketbook. That's ideal because at that point, then you're going to keep that filter in place. You're going to replace it with the same one. And over time, you just keep developing that, that mentality of clean air. 
Right, and that's that's it. one thing I would say about Campville is we really stress that idea, that question, that vision statement that I was saying before. You know, we live by that, and I'm proud to say that we we stick with that clean air or human right. And I think that's a great question to ask, and we always answer it yes, and that's what we're striving for. Sounds like you're doing something similar, as you said before. Nobody would tolerate dirty water. Nobody tolerates dirty water. But we can tolerate dirty air sometimes because we just don't know there's a better way. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't. We don't, we don't have to. Yeah, you're right. I we really... don't have to. There's no reason yeah. not to. Your system can handle it. Yeah. So anybody that's made it through to this point in the podcast, I want to thank you. And I know there's lots of you out there. And I think it's really great that there are people out there that are as into understanding clean air as understanding, you know, the latest phone or the latest audio system or, you know, how the most high performing cars and that just like those devices, those consumer products, your home has an air filtration system and it is worth understanding. (laughs) Yeah. So Mark, thank you so much. Uh, You've shared so much with us and our audience and uh, we're really, really grateful. Thank you. I I appreciate it. Again, I'm I'm lucky to be working for the company I work for and the people that I work with who are just really knowledgeable about air filtration. And it's it's really been a pleasure working here for the past 13 or 14 years and getting opportunity to share that information with people. Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah. And and we would like to thank Campful as well for uh, sharing your time freely with us and your expertise. And, uh, We would like to thank you listeners for being here as well. We'll talk to you next time.